This week, Cengage McGraw Hill worked to secure amendments for merger, MoneyGram's new $245 million second lien term loan, Halcon gets debt to EBITDA covenant waiver from lenders. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York, and it's just me this week, with the recap anyway. Later, we'll hear from the LADAM team, plus, of course, the week ahead. It's Sunday, May 12th. The proposed merger of Cengage and McGraw-Hill Education is subject to approval by 90% of lenders, and if that threshold is not reached, the deal will be cancelled, sources told Reorg. Lenders who consent to amendments to the company's existing credit facilities would not receive any economic consideration up front, the sources said. The 25 basis point consent fee would not be paid when the amendment passed, but rather only if it were to become effective, which would only happen if the merger closed, the sources added. Additionally, the 175 basis point coupon boosts offered to McGraw-Hill and Cengage lenders, respectively, would only become effective if the merger closed, the sources said. The amend and extend transaction would combine the existing $1.7 billion Cengage and $1.7 billion McGraw-Hill education term loans into a new $3.3 billion first lien loan maturing in May 2024. The merger would see Cengage and McGraw-Hill shareholders each with 50% of the common stock of the new combined company. MoneyGram began the process of addressing its capital structure by announcing a new $245 million senior secured second lien term facility. Those proceeds, plus available working capital, would be used to prepay $245 million of debt outstanding under the company's $900 million first lien term facility. That matures next year. According to an 8K, the closing of the second lien facility is conditioned on MoneyGram refinancing or extending its existing senior secured first lien revolving credit and term loan facilities. MoneyGram said that the refinancing or extension of the first lien facilities, quote, is expected to commence in the near future. On an earnings call, CEO Alex Holmes said that the pick portion is, quote, less than half of the yield, but significant in terms of the cash impact that it can have. Holmes also said that the new facility would be part of a three-step process to refinance the company's debt. He said the goal is first, to complete the subordinated debt process, second, to amend and extend the existing first lien term loan, and finally, third, to extend the revolving credit facility. Holmes added that the process for steps two and three should start, quote, in the next couple of days and be, quote, a much more accelerated process that would be done sometime in the next few weeks. The company also reported earnings, first quarter revenue of $315.4 million, down 17% year over year, and adjusted EBITDA of $50.1 million, down 25% year over year. On Thursday, the Denver-based ENP Halcon stated in its first quarter 10Q that it had obtained from its lenders a waiver from compliance with the consolidated total net debt-to-EBITDA ratio covenant for the period, while raising the applicable margin on the company's borrowings and imposing certain reporting and other obligations. The waiver extends until August 1st, but may be terminated July 1st by the majority lenders in their sole discretion, and earlier upon the occurrence of certain other events. The lenders also reduced Halcon's borrowing base to $225 million from $275. Halcon said that the need for the covenant waiver is a result of its strategic decision to transform into a pure play ENP focused on the Delaware Basin in West Texas. 
This resulted in Halcon divesting producing properties located in other areas and acquiring primarily undeveloped acreage in Delaware, which in turn required a significant capex outlay for drilling activities to replace lost production and related EBITDA. Quote, Anticipating that it might be challenging to comply with the covenants under the senior credit agreement, the company has periodically sought and obtained amendments and consents from the lenders under the senior credit agreement. Halcon also reported a 14% sequential decline in first quarter revenue to $51.9 million and a 10.5% sequential decline in company-reported adjusted EBITDA to $21.9 million. The company burned $148.5 million in levered free cash flow in the first quarter, which comprised negative $36.8 million of operating cash flow, $81.1 million spent on oil and gas capex, and $30.6 million spent on other capex. Now with our weekly update for Puerto Rico, in its 16th public meeting, the PROMISA Oversight Board approved a new version of the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan and designated all 78 municipalities of the Commonwealth as, quote, covered instrumentalities under PROMISA, quote, with the aim of securing their long-term fiscal viability. The new version of the fiscal plan, which was posted by the board just prior to the meeting, projects lower government surpluses in the short term, but larger surpluses in the long term. This is because of a longer-than-previously-anticipated rollout of federal disaster spending, Board Executive Director Natalie Juresco said. The new plan projects $83 billion in federal disaster aid, but its distribution has been lengthened to 15 years from 10. Juresco said that the new surplus through fiscal 2024 is just under $14 billion, which the previous plan had at almost $18 billion. The 30-year surplus under the new plan is nearly $20 billion versus just under 13 under the previous plans. The new plan also calls for an additional $1.4 billion in Medicaid funding through fiscal 2024. And in addition to designating those 78 municipalities as covered entities under PROMISA, the Oversight Board also said that it will require a five-year fiscal plan from the Municipal Reserve Collection Center, or CRIM which has already been designated a covered entity. The Oversight Board said that it will, quote, initially work with 10 geographically aligned municipalities to develop fiscal plans and budgets to be reviewed and certified by the Oversight Board by the end of the current fiscal year, 2019. These municipalities will be required to include in their fiscal plans spending reduction and efficiency measures, such as intermunicipal shared services agreements, programs to improve and optimize local revenue collection, economic development guidelines and decentralization proposals, and that's all according to the Oversight Board's press release. In a statement following the meeting, Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority Executive Director Christian Sabrino stressed that the move, quote, does not suggest the commencement of Title III or other proceedings for the municipalities. Also, Judge Laura Taylor Swain granted AFAF and the PROMISA Oversight Board's motion seeking to stay the PREPA receiver motion pending adjudication of the underlying settlements embodied in the Definitive Restructuring Support Agreement. The court noted that under the PREPA bond, trust agreements, quote, must hold 20% of the outstanding PREPA bonds to have standing to seek the appointment of a receiver. The ruling came after the announcement of a definitive RSA with creditors holding 51% of the outstanding revenue bonds, with the PREPA ad hoc bondholder group holding 40% and assured 11, according to AFAF officials. Under the definitive RSA, bondholders would exchange their bonds at 67.5 cents on the dollar for new tranche A bonds and at $0.10 cents on the dollar for new Tranche B bonds. Other top stories this last week were Ad Hoc Group accuses Silverpoint of filing new Kotai bankruptcy to cover bad acts in connection with Studio City International IPO, will seek termination of exclusivity to file own plan. PG&E, 
California Department of Insurance now reports $12 billion in insured losses from the November 2018 wildfires. And Weatherford postpones first quarter earnings release from May 8th to May 10th. Now, as usual, here's the week ahead with Jim Holloway. Greetings, John. Hello, Connor. Uh, And you know, buddy, I'm glad you brought up Weatherford, fine company with roots here in Texas, not to mention Bermuda, Ireland, and Switzerland, although there are tax reasons for that. Anyway, I have one of them this just in moments for y'all. Late Friday, Weatherford did release their 10Q, the one postponed from Wednesday, and they announced therein that they are in an RSA with 62% of their unsecured note holders to restructure through Chapter 11 and its equivalent in Ireland and recapitalize with two and a half billion in funded debt. And that will be on or before July 15th, so good luck, boys. But wait, there's more. Also late Friday, Cloud Peak, which is in the business of extracting thermal coal from the Powder River Basin there up in Wyoming, filed for Chapter 11 with an RSA and sale agreement with 62% of the secureds of 2021 and more than 50% of the unsecureds of 2024. So I reckon there will be billable hour opportunities this week in the form of first day hearing. And of course, we will give you all the details once there are details to be given. And moving right along. What do you know? Well, folks, looks like Bristow, that would be Bristow Group, the Chapa Company, has filed for Chapter 11 here in the Southern District of Texas. That will be for the U.S. entities and two Cayman subsidiaries, but not the non-U.S. entities, all right? And Bristow, too, has entered into an RSA with the, quote, overwhelming majority, unquote, of parent company senior secured note holders. First day hearing is scheduled for May 4th, which is May 14th, excuse me, and that is a Tuesday, and I guess that'll be here in Houston. Now let's get to the calendar. Monday, May 13th, there is a cash collateral hearing in PHI. We have first quarter earnings from Pacific Drilling. Hopefully get some color on the state of the uh, ultra-deep water market. Earnings from Navios and Donaos, a couple of fine Greek shipping companies. Shipping being among the many things Greece does extremely well. And here's a historical factoid for y'all. The Piraeus, near Athens, where a lot of them big boats tie up and where a lot of these companies have the headquarters, is where the well-known Socrates harangues his pupils. As a matter of fact, the first line of that well-known classic, The Republic, by his student Plato, of course reads, quote, I went down to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, that I might offer up my prayers to the goddess, unquote. And the goddess is Athena, I reckon. Anyways, on to Tuesday, there is the aforementioned first day for Bristow. There's a hearing on the Ditech debtor's motion to disband the Consumer Creditors Committee, which they say is undermining progress. Okay, can't have that now, can we? Omnibus hearing in, mid, in Windstream and earnings from Iconics. Wednesday, May 15th. Hexion, there's a hearing on the RSA backstop motion and a confirmation hearing scheduling. And there are earnings from Windstream. Thursday, May 16th, there's a disclosure statement hearing in Waypoint, another helicopter company, and an early tender deadline for Sable Permian's exchange offer. And Reorg will be hosting a panel on the offshore energy services sector. That would be rigs and OSVs, moderated by my friend and colleague Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research, along with some legal and financial luminaries. It's at the Park in New York on West 56. You can register on our website, and I will be there, assuming I'm allowed into New York City. Come up and say hi. I'll be the man in the back with the cowboy boots on, and I'm happy to share both my business card and my recommendations for the best barbecue and Cajun joints between Midland and Baton Rouge. 
Friday, May 17th, is the early tender deadline for Albertson's exchange offer and the RSA deadline for Fusion Connect. And that is all. Connor, back over to you. Thanks, Jim. And now we have a discussion with the LATAM team. Team lead Kyle Awusu and corporate credit analyst Brandon Liu will discuss three state-owned petroleum companies, as well as C-Drill. Thanks. My name is Kyle Awusu. I'm a senior distressed debt analyst for the LATAM team with Reorg Emerging Markets, and I'm joined here with my colleague Brandon Liu, one of our corporate credit analysts on the LATAM team, and we're going to talk about uh, the Latin American international oil companies as well as offshore drillers, sea drill partners. Uh, so let's uh, let's get right into it. Um, you know, this week you had some earnings releases with. Pemex, Petrobras, and uh, you know YPF, and if you look at um, Pemex is roughly two billion six and a half due twenty twenty nine. Um, that is now yielded. The yield to maturity on that bond is now about you know, just under seven percent, about six point nine percent. Petrobras, you have the one point nine billion ten uh, year five point seven five percent bond. The yield to maturity is about five point seven percent. The spread between uh, those two bonds um, has widened from around seventy five basis points um, as of you know roughly April 29th to roughly one hundred twenty roughly one hundred twenty basis points. With with the Pemex bond dropping a little bit, um, likely maybe on the back of some earnings noise um, or news rather. Um, and uh, then YPF, uh, you, know, you have the $870 million, um, 2027 bond yielding about 9.8%. So that gives you just a sense of where the bonds are trading. Um, and, you know, let's, let's sort of kick in here, Brandon. Um, so starting with a bit of an overview of the companies, um, you know, these are integrated uh, oil and gas companies. Um, so what, what, what percentage of revenue comes from upstream and, and downstream? Yeah, so with all three companies, Petrobras, Pemex, and YPF, just around 30% of their respective revenues come from upstream. Uh, Petrobras gets between 50 and 60% of their revenues from the downstream segment. Um, for them, the rest of them, rest of the revenue is is within the midstream and power is from the midstream and power generation segments. Uh, Pemex also their downstream is generates about 60% of, of their revenue. Uh, and they also, similar to Petrobras, have a, a midstream segment. Uh, and they also have trading segments and, and a segment for uh, ethylene produ- production. Uh, YPF at, uh, generates about 50% of their revenue from uh, the, the downstream, downstream segment. And similarly to, um, to Petrobras, they have a, a power generation segment as well. Got it. So you're looking at... Um you know, around 30% upstream, it looks like for all three of them. And then maybe, you know, like 50 to 60 ish on, on downstream and the rest sort of a mix of power generation and midstream, um, within, within the upstream on, 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 um, what, what's the split between natural gas and, and crude oil? Yeah. So majority, uh, is crude oil for all three of them. Petrobras, uh, uh about, 80% of, of the production is uh, crude oil. Uh, YPF, around 60% is crude oil, I would say. Uh, you know, just looking at, at their last earnings and production report. Uh, and Pemex is right in the middle. They've about 
75% of their production is crude oil. And, and from the, the recent calls and, and news, I've, I've seen at least uh, for Petrobras, for, I'm sorry, for Pemex and YPF, uh, both of those seem to be gearing even more towards crude oil production, at least in the, in the short term. Okay. And turning to the balance sheets, let's say Brent trades in, in the 50s. Who, which one of these companies would be best positioned to withstand that, that type of pressure? So Petrobras, I would say, definitely has the strongest balance sheet of the three companies uh, you know, to withstand any market volatility. Uh, it's got close to $1.5 billion uh, Dollars in bonds coming due in 2021, but it has close to $10 billion of cash on its balance sheet and over $15 billion of total liquidity when you uh, when you factor in their their access to revolving credit facilities and, and other uh, you know other drawdown capacity. Uh, it, it's also been divesting a lot of non-core assets recently, so and and using those proceeds to to further deleverage, so that's also helped. Uh, their current leverage is about 2.2 times. Uh, YPF has uh, currently sim- similar net leverage at about 2.4 times. Uh, their their balance sheet is is on a much smaller scale. It has about 7.5 billion dollars of debt compared to uh, over 100 105 billion in debt for Pemex and a little under 80 billion of outstanding debt for um, for. Petrobras, um, and it doesn't have any YPF. That is YPF doesn't have any large uh, U.S. dollar-denominated bonds coming due in the next few years. Uh, but on on their earnings call this morning, uh, management was asked about the 1.5 billion dollars of debt coming due this year, uh, which is mostly made up of bank debt and trade facilities. And management is pretty confident that uh, that they that they can roll that debt over. You know, being more short-term in nature at a at a reasonable price, and it it also admitted that tapping the international markets right now would probably probably be pretty tough with all of the uh, with all the volatility and uh, and the the FX fluctuations uh, with the Argenti- with the Argentine peso. Um, YPF also has decent liquidity. They have about $1.5 billion of cash on their ma- on their balance sheet. And management talked today on their call uh, about how it's currently funding all of its CapEx with cash generated from uh, from its operations, and it plans to keep it that way. Uh, so, so that leaves Pemex, which is you know, definitely the the weakest in terms of its balance sheet and its current financial position. Uh, it has over $6 billion of debt due in the next two to two and a half years. Uh, currently only has, or is cur- currently has about $3.5 billion of cash and cl- close to $4 billion of capacity on their revolvers. But the capacity on their revolvers was j- over $8 billion just at the end of this year, of, at the end of 2018. So that would mean they drew down over four billion dollars from their from the revolvers just in the first quarter. Uh, the majority of their revolvers, which are U.S. dollar based, uh, come due in the next couple of years, so that they could run into run into some more problems if they were to further draw down on those um, on that re- revolving credit facility capacity. Uh, and on top of that, they burned about two billion dollars in in cash in the 
first quarter after reporting over a billion dollars of cash used in operating activities and spent about $700 million in CapEx. Uh, and, and their current net leverage is about 3.8 times. Got it. So it sounds like, um, yeah, Pemex uh, has, has the sort of the, the maturity wall um, and, and Petrobras seems to have the most liquidity, whereas YPF maybe has a bit of a, a bit of a maturity wall with the one and a half billion. Maybe you can roll that because um, it's mostly bank debt and trade debt, um, even though um, the international markets is pretty tough. So maybe you have to sort of rely on the local markets there. Um, from a capex standpoint, what, what what's the plan? Um, you know, over say the next three years for, for these companies. Yeah. So so Pemex in their in their call definitely highlighted its goal to stabilize production, which has been falling for the last 15 years or so. And they expect uh, production to at least stabilize and maybe even you know slightly start to increase slightly by the end of this year. Uh, their CFO said that the company plans to fund all of its CapEx, uh, which increased over 30 is, will, will have increased if they follow their plan uh, over 30% compared to 2018 with uh, with only internally generated internally generated cash um, and many analysts feel that uh, they, they still won't be spending enough in order to grow production and you know eventually become profitable um, and also with Pemex uh, with, with how much they're paying right now to the government and you know coupled with their new plans to to contract third parties on um, on projects in their newfound oil fields, uh, it, it'll be tough to to have profitable pro- profitable production, um, just because, you, like I said, you're you're paying the government, and you're paying these third party contracts. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how much you know how much they can profit from from those projects. Uh, YPF, their plan is is to stay under two times leverage, which they reported at. Uh, they reported net leverage to be at 1.7 times in their call uh, earlier this morning, and, and as I said before, uh, they're pretty limited in ter- limited in terms of being able to tap the international market with all of the the noise in Argentina right now. Uh, and similar to Pemex, they need to stabilize and eventually grow production, and they they feel that they can do that in the next couple of years, uh, even even though they project. Uh, in 2019, that that production will still be uh, will still decline by two to three percent. Um, but they they feel that uh, over the next couple of years they can they can exploit uh, mostly uh, opportunities in Vaca Muerta and um, and eventually generate uh, more cash to from from increased production in order to pay down its larger mature maturities, which in, in time, which don't come for another few years. Uh, Petrobras, like I said, is, is has been divesting a lot of assets, uh, non-core assets, and using those proceeds to pay down their debt. Um, and this company has also seen production fall recently, but it's optimistic about the the pre-salt area, which um, the pre-salt layer, which has been increasingly profitable in terms of uh, production as the company has continued to bring down. Uh, operating expenses and lifting costs in the region, so that should hopefully uh, help out their li- their liquidity as well. Okay, great. Um, so, so you know, 
shifting gears a little bit, we have two relatively new administrations um, with AMLO in Mexico and Bolsonaro in Brazil. And we've had certainly no shortage of of political drama in, in Argentina. So what should investors be concerned about from a regulatory or, or political standpoint when looking at these companies? So in Argentina, kind of like we talked about on the last podcast, uh, the elections are causing most of the volatility that, that we're seeing in the Argentine markets right right now. Um, President Macri recently canceled earlier this year the government's natural gas subsidy. Uh, but earlier in his uh, in his term, he was really supportive of, of the development and of of Vaca Muerta and provided subsidy and, and incentive plans in order to attract as many investors as possible. Um, but s- sudden changes in the political and economic agenda, you know, if, if there were to be a change in the regime, uh, that, that could trigger a higher perceived risk for the country's capacity to move forward with, with some of its energy reforms, uh, natural gas export plans, etc. Um, one thing that I've that's been topical with Petrobras and that you know, we've kind of been keeping an eye on here um, with Petrobras and, and the Brazilian government has been um, President Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro's ability to in, influence Petrobras and its pricing of its diesel products. Uh, the government has intervened and capped diesel prices in the past uh, during, during recent uh, trucker strikes. Uh, and a few weeks ago, Petrobras canceled a planned price Increase, which it had, which it had um, announced previously, announced uh, that it was planning to do, uh, and this was this, and and then despite issuing issuing a release to clarify that management decided on its own to not move forward with the price hike, uh, investors are now skeptical on how much power the Brazilian government has with respect to Petrobras uh, and its and its business its business operations. Uh, with with Pemex and, and AMLO, uh, AMLO has put energy reform at the top of his agenda since stepping in as president. Uh, and yesterday, he announced that after initiating a, a bidding process for a new refinery in Dos Bocas, Pemex will actually oversee the operations and perform the construction of the refinery. Uh, and that'll be nearly $8 billion in CapEx uh, at least that's that's what that's what is projected uh, over the next two to three years. Uh, additionally, he has banned fracking, which eliminates the possibility of sourcing uh, from unconventional sources. And Pemex has also recently abandoned its development activities in deep water fields to focus more on onshore development, uh, which which that should have an impact on offshore drillers across the globe. Uh, speaking of which, Kyle, uh, you recently did a waterfall on Cedral Partners recently, right? Um, yes, yes, we did. Uh, we, we put out a waterfall analysis on uh, on Cedral Partners recently. Nice. So so what's going on with that company? Can you, can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, Cedral Partners is a, a UK headquartered offshore drilling company with about $3 billion of debt comprising a term loan B and three separate facilities. The company owns 11 offshore drilling vessels. So it those vessels work for offshore drilling companies similar to the likes of Pemex and, and, and Petrobras. 
uh, for on, on, on day rate contracts. Um, and uh, so again, there's three billion of debt. About 400 million of the facility debt comes due in 2020, and then you've got the the 2.7 billion term loan B which is due February 2021. And the, the term loan B was sort of the focus of the waterfall piece since, to our knowledge, that's the most widely traded tra- widely traded instrument in the cap stack. Got it. Wow. So so $3 billion coming due in, in the next couple of years. So that's that's definitely big. Uh, what's, what's their cash situation? So the company um, reported a little over $840 billion of cash um, as, a, as a fiscal year end. Okay. So... So liquidity isn't that much of an issue, at least in the in the near term. Uh, what about cash generation? What's that look like? Um, are the rigs on contract? So the that's the the bigger issue. Um, the you know the offshore drilling business. Uh, there's a lot of operating leverage. The the rigs work on at usually on contracts that pay a certain day rate um, and the operating costs are you know pretty much fixed uh, so when the business is, is is running it's and it's running you know smoothly the rigs can throw off a, a lot of cash um, but in this instance uh, by the end of I believe um, 2020, um, all of these rigs are going to roll off contract. Um, you already have uh, a few right now. So um, you've got the West Leo, the West Sirius, um, the West Polaris uh, that are idle um, right now. And the West uh, Capricorn, um, which just saw its contract get terminated. Um, so you know, going into 2020, the, 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 the contract situation looks, looks a lot worse. Got it. So, so the term loan B there's, there's $2.7 billion coming due, uh, in February, 2021. Um, where's that trading right now? Uh, so that is trading around, um, 79, I think 79 or 80. Got it. So, so the market's saying a refi may be difficult, uh, which I'm guessing you probably agree with, uh, or you probably wouldn't have done the waterfall. So, so should we be should we be on the lookout for for Chapter Eleven filing? Uh, so I don't think so. I think for a few reasons, a, a, a the company may be able to avoid a Chapter Eleven here. First of all, as as we pointed out, the, there's over a, there's probably over 800 billion of cash right now. Um, that the company has, so so I think that gives partners flexibility to address the 400 billion that comes due in 2020. Also, I think at least two of those facilities, uh, the 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 T15 and T16 tender rig and the West Vela drill ship facility, are probably. Um, in the money, um, so I don't think those lenders are going to want to see um, the. They're not going to want to rock the boat. Uh, they don't really have a reason to. I don't think. Um, and the other, the other factor here is that Sea Drill Limited, which recently got went through its own Chapter Eleven, uh, owns equity stakes in in Seagill Partners, the parent co, and also owns um, equity stakes in two separate term loan B guarantors. So I think um, Sea Drill Limited uh, may want to avoid a bankruptcy here as well. 
So, you know, I think you just have um, A, the, the cash gives you some, some flexibility to work with, but then B, uh, you also probably have a few parties here, both in the capital structure and um, outside the capital structure as the equity owner that, that just don't ha- have, that probably don't want to see a bankruptcy play out. Got it. So, so no chapter 11, probably at least, at least in the, in the short term. How do you see this playing out? Well, I'm sure this is going to come back to bite me because uh, whatever I say may happen uh, will end up not happening. Um, but, you know, looking at what I believe to be the most difficult uh, tranche of debt to address, which is the term loan B, I think you could see an amend and extend where lenders agree to push out the maturity um, say for five to maybe like five to seven years to give the company more and more time um, in exchange for any combination of uh, an increased coupon, maybe increased security in the form of a springing lien over the T15, uh, T16 um, and or West Vela, um, or even a guarantee uh, from the West Vela's direct parent, which I believe, and I could be wrong about this also, but I believe uh, does not uh, provide um, a, a, a guarantee right now, at least based on the term loan B documents, um, or they could just ask for um, in addition to that or separate from that tighter covenant. So I think there's some, some, some wiggle room in terms of negotiating where you could see some give and take from the company and from bondholders. Okay. Got it. Uh, and if the company were to file, uh, what did you come up with in terms of uh, estimated recoveries? So my estimated recoveries are roughly 70% to 90%. And the term loan B, as we said, is trading at around 79 or 80. Um, so slightly, it's trading slightly below my mid case. My recoveries are largely, uh, or recoveries for lenders are largely premised on um, a significant portion of the company's cash uh, being distributed to bond, to, I keep saying bondholders to um the the term loan b creditors got it uh so what makes you so confident that the term loan b lenders are going to get that much of the company's cash so if i just take a step back and, and just look at the structure uh Given that most of the rigs in the group are term loan B collateral and pledged to the term loan B and the, the earnings accounts related to those rigs are part of the term loan B collateral, I think it just from an, from a, from an, from an assumption standpoint, I think it's reasonable to assume that most of the cash is, is term loan B collateral. But what gives me a little more comfort is in the first three quarters of 2017, partners released information on their term loan B financials. And that information showed that in the third quarter of 2017, 67% of cash was, was collateral vessel cash. I don't think uh, that number has changed much since since Q3 2017. Uh, the, the West Sirius has gone idle. Um, so that, that went idle, I believe, in July of 2017. But then you've had you've also had the West Vencedor uh, added as collateral. Uh, it's not it's probably not an equal offset because the series maybe generated a bit more cash, but still I don't think that the the figure deviates that far from the two thirds. Got it. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kyle. Uh, I think that's that's all we have time for. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Podcast. As always, you can find all of them on the site's media page or iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelting.